You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. How are you, David? I'm well, thanks, Giles. Um, listeners are uh, probably enjoying the, uh, life at the moment. Uh, it, it's been an interesting week as, as ever, both in electricity and in the broader world. Yes, well, it certainly has been. And um, look, we do have a special guest to interview later on in the program, um, Brian Davis. He's the head of energy solutions at Shell and um, their pivot towards electric vehicles, battery storage and all things electrification. But look, there's a couple of important things to talk about, as you have mentioned. And look, let's start off with the New South Wales election. Um, the uh, Gladys Berejiklian government has returned. It's returned with a majority. Um, you wrote a, um, a pretty good piece um, in the lead-up pointing out that um, they both come out with policies of some sort but really were disinclined to talk about any of them very much. Now, Labor's, um, I guess you could describe it as a, uh, a more far-reaching policy. Well, Charles, um, there's no point in talking about Labor's policy. Well, exactly. Uh, That's what I was just about to say, actually. So, well, let's forget that. And let's. Uh, uh, the Liberals' policy was mainly, I think, focused on at the, in, in the short instance of, of um, I guess, covering the Labor guys in regard to household solar. Uh, and there is, uh, that's to, we, we like that, but they didn't really announce anything in regard to the longer term time frame. We have to see the new cabinet that is appointed here in New South Wales and whether there are any changes. Uh, there's been some thought that maybe there'll be more focus on the environment in general. Um, and perhaps power, uh, electricity is certainly going to become a bigger deal in New South Wales, I think, over the next three or four years. Uh, but other than that, I think it's going to be pretty much business as usual, and we'll just have to wait and see and uh, let people get on with tr- um, the transmission development. Well, they're going to have to do something because um, tr- business as usual is probably not going to work in New South Wales with Liddell due to retire in 2022 and Vale's point in 2029, although it's put its hand up for some more government money to extend the life of that plant. Um, in New South Wales, uh, we published a graph last week or earlier this week, sorry, just pointing out that um, it is the state with the biggest pipeline of wind, solar and storage projects. But um, as you say, nothing, nothing will get done really. And unless there's a, there is a plan for either upgraded transmission or some sort of plan to actually sort of affect that transition from coal into um, what will be the cheapest technologies to replace well, Charles, them. Charles, the important thing to understand is that uh, right now, if uh, and I don't think this is gospel truth, but if you were to take it at face value, uh, um, Transgrid thinks there's only about 1,800 megawatts of uh, uh, new projects that could be connected in New South Wales right this instant. Snowy 2 does seem to be going ahead, um, and because it's going ahead, all the transmission work related and required for Snowy 2 will also go ahead. And all you know is, uh, if you're an existing project or thinking of building in the northern western Victoria, southern New South Wales region, is that's almost sure to cause you a problem of one sort or another, because we all know that when, when you're doing reconstructions, building new stuff, your existing work gets interfered with. It happens to every homeowner in renovations and it happens to electricity transmission just the same. 
Absolutely, yes. And sometime between now and the next podcast, uh, we'll get the final decision on the marginal loss factors for all those wind and solar plants, which is part of this sort of variable thing that we're seeing now year to year, these big variations in the amount of output that gets credited from um, production to destination. That's a disgrace, um, Giles. It's a disgrace that AEMO hasn't got out in front of this issue a lot more. It was blindingly obvious to everyone that there were going to be uh, some big changes in MLS. When I say it's blindingly obvious, it was blindingly obvious after last year. Um, mm. uh, I think last year caught people by surprise, but people at AEMO, that's the sort of thing that they, really they do get paid to understand and get out in front of a little bit more. And it shouldn't be the case, I don't believe, that MLFs should change so rapidly from year to year. Uh, despite what anyone tells you, that is not what has happened historically when you look across the sector. MLFs have tended to be very stable for the most part. Now they're jumping around in no, nobody's business, increasing risk. And uh, one of the, and it's all very well saying companies, uh, developers should be prepared for it, but AEMO doesn't give them the information that lets them prepare because everyone that's planning to build a new project wants to keep the details of it totally secret. That's hopeless. We have yes. to have more visibility on the forward outlook and the queue. And that's another job. I mean, AEMO themselves recognise this. They just haven't got round to doing it. Not good enough. Yes, well, I think I well, no, look, I agree with you, and um, I think they sort of shifting part of the blame back to the AEMC because they haven't sort of updated the rules and, and what have you. But still, um, it just sort of you know, it's yet another example of where the authorities in Australia are just not keeping up with the pace of technology change. Now, and, Charles, um, I know you want to jump on to the federal government list, but I want to mention what I think is the most important event that happened this week that will escape the attention of nine hundred and ninety-nine out of a thousand people. Uh, and that is the Energy Security Board uh, saying that they're calling for development or looking at reform of the, uh, what the appropriate market structure is for electricity uh, over the forthcoming decade or even the next 20 years. Um, and you know whatever changes might be required to the national electricity objective um, uh, to, that would be required to accomplish that. And, Although this will be another one of those slow burns, the early work and thinking is going to happen over the remainder of this calendar year. So I would suggest that any of our seriously professional listeners, uh, this is a subject of vital importance to us all, that we do have a good market structure and the right national electricity objective. And I I know many people think that uh, uh, decarbonisation should be in the national electricity objective. And now is the time to start making plans and coalitions and uh, forming groups and advocacy and getting right on board with that. Absolutely. And you made exactly that point in a very good article that uh, we published earlier on this week. And um, it is actually quite interesting. I mean, as you say, it's a fundamental, potentially fundamental reform of the market rules. Um, We're seeing more and more that um, they have been um, coming up short. So starting from scratch, putting in an environment um, just seems like a pretty logical thing to do. So um, hopefully we can get and talk to someone from the Energy Security Board over the next couple of weeks about what their initial thinking is on that. Um, but look, you're right. I did want to talk about what I'm calling the Fungi 12. The Fungi is the uh, the official name is the Underwriting New Generation Investment. This is this underwriting scheme um, done by the federal government, and I've put an F in the front of it to call it Fungi. And 
um, on Tuesday they've announced their 12 shortlisted candidates and lo and behold, despite all the talk, despite all the bluster, there is only one single coal project in there and it is certainly not a new coal-fired plant. Um, it is a upgrade um, for the Vales Point generator. The details we don't know much about, but um, the Vales Point generator is half-owned by um, generous Liberal Party donor um, Trevor St. Baker. But, David, I just want to focus just briefly. I mean, we've known that there's been there's not going to be any new coal generation because it doesn't make any sense. This seems to be at least official recognition that that is the case, um, even though they've thrown a bone to the Queensland M- MPs and LNP people and Barnaby Joyce about doing a feasibility study for Queensland. But... Um, they called for tenders, they called for ideas, they called for projects, they said we'll back you, they said we'll even indemnify you, and they haven't come up with a single decent idea. Charles, uh, you remind me of when I was a young dad in New Zealand, and I was at the uh, Winter Festival at Queenstown, uh, we were doing a little scheme, and uh, and uh, the local guy came in and he said, why is a comedian like a mushroom? <laughs> Uh, and you know the answer to this one, I take it? <laughs> no, I do not. Because <laughs> he's a, a fun guy to be with, you know? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, um, back to yes. So there's a list of projects there which we can't take too seriously just yet because, uh, as you point out in your article, and as we all know, one, these projects take a long time to get off the ground. Uh, two, there are no details about any of them. And three, the federal government's in caretaker mode now. And it's uh, very unclear. Um, and as we've said previously, if you look at the opinion polls and the betting odds, um, uh, you wouldn't be backing them at the moment to, to be in a position to implement any of those proposals. So, so we, we'll just have to wait and see. And can I just point out that uh, in the market, and this does bring us back to market design and market structure, but is there really a price signal at the moment to have new dispatchable energy? Uh, and, 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 and I would argue that there isn't, only if there, there are plenty of pumped hydro projects around over and beyond Snowy 2, which is being built. Um, uh, and there is, as we heard last week, still the heads of agreement in Queensland for the Kidston uh, uh, GenX project. Uh, there are all these proposals for pumped hydro in South Australia. We have a list in New South Wales that the New South Wales government uh, has seen a, a long list of its own advocates or uh, investors who want to get involved in taking advantage of what you might call brownfield sites or bluefield bluefield dams here in New South Wales. Um, um, this list of projects that the federal government's got can, can sort of fit in with all of that somewhere along the line uh, and really needs a price signal uh, to, for any of it to go ahead. Yeah, well, no, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, look, I wouldn't be surprised if Labor actually takes this and, and, and runs with this to a certain extent um, because if it does narrow down to some of the projects we, which may not need much in terms of federal funding but may just, um, um, I think Sanjeev Gupta, for instance, for his project in Moyala has pointed out that if we get, you know, a government offtake or a government sort of support for, you know, years 5 to 11 or 5 to 15, which is the original ACCC proposal, then that reduces the cost of finance and significantly reduces the cost of the technology and the cost of generation and um, and what have you. So, and um, also also crowds out other projects. And this is the perpetual well, thing with the government funding. And we, that you know you can't consider these things in isolation. Despite what the ACCC said, 
uh, they didn't really demonstrate the need other than the few people had spoken to them and said they couldn't get this support, which I, I hardly think uh, constitutes a proper study into how much dispatchable generation is needed or when it's needed or what the best way to provide it. How can we have this fantastic debate uh, between the AMO and the AMC about the RERT and the RERT rules and then you've just got the federal government or any government just uh, walk in from the side and say, we're going to build X, Y and Z <laughs> uh, and support it. I mean, again, I think these things have to be done in consultation with the Energy Security Board, with AEMO and in accordance with a bigger and better overall scheme, a plan to understand at least in some way how each project fits into the, into the, into the bigger scheme of things. Wise words, David. Yes, indeed. And look, um, I'm just going to wait, before we go to our interview, just going to ask you one other question, but I know your answer, but I do want to hear you say it. Um, the government has actually thrown a bone, as I said, to the Queensland LNP members and Barnaby Joyce, saying we will look at a feasibility study in central and north Queensland. Will anyone, will that result in a new coal generator in Queensland? Uh, I doubt it very much myself. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people willing to do a feasibility study and I'm sure the feasibility study can come up with an idea that it's a good idea because we all know that if you pay enough money, people enough money to come up with something that you want to happen, they'll write that it's a good idea. But I think uh, no one thinks that building a new, no one other than a coal miner thinks uh, and maybe a few members of the National Party really think that a new coal generation plant in Queensland is going to be the answer to the problems of anyone other than, other than the coal mine that supplies the coal. I mean, decarbonisation remains a massive priority. Can I point out that in Arizona, uh, we now have a situation where in an open competitive tender between open cycle gas and batteries, batteries won, and that's at Arizona gas prices. Um, uh, you know, Australia is Nicholas a long... Email. Yes. No, go ahead. Sorry, finish it. No, Australia is a long way behind. We're still not thinking hard enough about how to integrate, you know, the household batteries that, that are planned under various uh, state schemes in South Australia uh, and in Victoria and perhaps federally. Uh, we're still not thinking hard enough about the utility scale batteries and, and coupling them. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be left out for day to day peaks of one or two hours. Uh, this could be a very cost effective solution um, uh, when you've got your snowy twos to deal with your your longer term uh, low wind conditions. So, mm. I mean, as I say, that just, you know, picking these projects out is, is, is just nutty, in my opinion, without having done some more thinking about how the whole mix is going to work. Well, moving um, nice little segue there. I hope I'm going to I'm going to try and stretch it anyway um, about the sort of the need for integrating all these different ideas and all these different technologies together. One group that has been seriously thinking about this is Royal Dutch Shell, and um, re as readers of Renew Economy may remember or may have read in the last couple of weeks, Shell have been out being in a little buying spree. They've bought two electric vehicle charging network companies, one in the US and one in Europe. They've bought a UK utility called First Utility, which they've rebranded in the last couple of days as a 100% renewable energy utility and they've also bought the German battery storage maker Sonnen which has just recently opened a large manufacturing plant in South Australia. Now all the people from Royal Dutch Shell and from Sonnen were out in Australia last week they gave a presentation at Bloomberg and just afterwards I managed to catch up with Brian Davis he is the head of energy solutions within the new energy divisions of Shell and here's that interview. Brian Davis, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Giles. Nice to be here. 
You are Vice President of Energy Solutions at Shell, and New Energy Solutions and the New Energy Division has been extremely busy over the last couple of years since it was created. It's got a budget, I understand, of $1 to $2 billion. It's made a bunch of purchases, and I'd like to go into those in some detail. But let's start with the bigger picture. Shell is obviously investing a lot of money in new energy technologies. Why is it doing that? What does this tell us about where technologies and the whole um, transport and electricity industry is heading? Yeah. So um, our new energies business is part of Shell's um, strategic response to um, the, the trends we see in the world to um, move towards more and cleaner energy. So, um, you know, we've seen an increasing need uh, to bring on sources of um, cleaner energy to meet the uh, world's need for more energy. Um, trends such as um, um, decarbonisation to meet the commitment of Paris. And from Shell's perspective, when we looked at all of that and said, we need to be able to thrive through the energy transition that's ahead of us. Um, and so to do that, we're building in our new energies business um, a portfolio of low-carbon uh, energy businesses. And those low-carbon energy businesses have at their heart deploying um, new technologies and combining them in ways that uh, meet customer needs. Is this a response to climate change or is it a response to changing economics about technologies or is it a mixture of both? Yeah, it's, it's, a, um, it's a response to uh, what, what people want, which is that um, you know, society wants to um, uh, move the world towards a, a place where you've got affordable and clean energy that's also uh, sustainable and we, um, we, we uh, reduce the carbon intensity. And so... Um, what we see as a big business opportunity in, um, in the results and implications of that where you see more electrification, uh, the need for um, uh, decarbonizing the electricity grid, and then the technologies are coming along uh, driven by that imperative and getting um, lower cost and uh, therefore more profitable. And so what our objective is to um, deploy technologies um, at scale uh, in, in, in a commercial enterprise uh, to deliver um, low carbon energy. In recent presentations, Shell has talked of this shift to electrification that you're talking about, and that goes with, I presume, transport, and it goes to sort of heating and manufacturing needs. The, um, the, the talk from Shell in those presentations has been, this is gonna be a very quick transition. It's talking about um, electrification within 10, 15, 20 years. That's extraordinary. That's much quicker than most people are recognizing or have thought. And um, why is it gonna happen so quickly? And what are the implications for the rest of the Shell business? Yeah, so the, um, I think what's driving the, uh, the trend of increased electrification is, um, is that um, you're seeing more, more technologies that are enabled by electricity becoming affordable and starting with uh, wind and solar. So uh, wind and solar technologies have come down dramatically over time and um, in some parts of the world are um, standalone competitive with um, traditional sources of electricity. But today, um, you know, wind and solar electric renewables are only 1% of the global energy system, something of that order. Uh, we're seeing, you know, people, something much more visible to your, to your listeners is uh, electric vehicles. You know, people are talking about getting either hybrid electric vehicles or full electric vehicles. Uh, they're coming online, uh, people are buying them, and of course that is electrifying transport, uh, and that's an early sign of things to come. Um, the general trend, so when we talk in our presentations around this growing need for electrification, 
Today, if you look at the energy system, about 20% of energy is delivered in the form of electricity. And we see that maybe going up towards 50% of the energy system. And we think that's what it needs to be to be able to reduce the carbon intensity of the overall energy system in line with the commitments that you know, governments and society have made in Paris. Let's go and start going to some of those purchases that you've made and, and, and sort of go straight to electric vehicles because yep. you've made two purchases in the last few months, Green Lots in the US and I think it's New Motion in, um, in Europe. That's What's right. the idea behind these purchases? Yeah, so um, Shell's got a long history of um, powering mobility around the world um, with a leading um, uh, branded fuels retailer uh, for um, gasoline and diesel around the world, present in 70 to 80 countries and a big player. And we see our customers moving from um, you know, wanting uh, petrol and diesel to power their cars to wanting electricity. And uh, the New Motion is a company we bought a year ago in the Netherlands, and they've got the largest uh, public charging network in Europe. And um, they've, they've got a really good sort of solution that allows you to basically be able to charge on the go and getting a very convenient recharging experience. So that's a response in part to the customer demand. We've also put fast charging infrastructure on our fuel sites in, um, in Europe, again, for people who want sort of fast on-the-go charging. And then more recently, earlier this year, we purchased Greenlots in the US. And Greenlots is a California-based company that is able to design electric charging uh, infrastructure and systems and very efficiently run them for people. And um, we, we see that as our way of growing our presence in the North American market. And so all of these are around our commitment to continue to sort of uh, provide uh, what customers want for their mobility and more and more that's electric mobility. And so we can start to, we can expect to see, I guess, in Australia too, um, sometime in the future, um, electric vehicle charging stations at what we now see as um, Shell petrol stations. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a reasonable thing to expect over time as more and more of the cars come to Australia. And, you know, I think what's uh, driving a lot of the demand for the, for the petrol station, or for the EV charging stations is the presence of electric vehicles. And so, you know, California, Norway, Netherlands, they're leading the charge in terms of deployment of electric vehicles. But as and when uh, consumers in Australia buy them, I'm sure the infrastructure will follow. I guess we've learnt from Norway that um, if you have government incentives that actually bring the price of electric vehicles down to parity with fossil fuel vehicles, then that transition actually occurs quite quickly. Yeah, and we're starting to totally. see 50% of new sales, um, electric vehicles. So would you expect then, I guess the most expectation, not every government's going to provide subsidies, but surely the cost of electric vehicles will fall over the next three to five years. And some people are predicting that within five years, parity will be reached. Are you expecting then to see a dramatic and rapid shift to electric vehicles? Yeah, I think you'll see. Um, yeah, so I think certainly as and when you get to a point where the purchase price is the same as buying you know, a traditional internal combustion engine, I think a lot of people will prefer electric over the internal combustion. Um, and you know, that's where, you know, that's the, the outlook we see in our scenarios of um, over time, the majority of light duty vehicles for those short range will be electrified. And so we're getting ready for that. And um, I think it's interesting when you look at what that means. Um, there are most journeys in the world, uh, like passenger journeys, are relatively short distance. And they're actually quite well suited for um, electrification because things such as range anxiety are less of a concern. 
Mm. Well, I think even some of the latest electric vehicles um, in Australia this week, we've had the launch of the Kona, which is a Hyundai vehicle, um, a compact SUV that has a range of 400 kilometres. So um, you probably don't get many petrol cars with the range going beyond that. I suppose it gets to, down to the speed of the charging at the other end or along the way, as you say, on the Correct. go. Let's move to um, another purchase you've just made, um, which is Sonnen, the German battery storage maker. Now, Sonnen have a plant in Australia, which they've just um, set up. That's partly to meet the South Australian government's home battery scheme. Why Sonnen? Why battery storage? Um, what's the attraction here? Yeah, um, it's a good one, Giles. Um, so, so I think firstly around energy storage, I think we think energy storage is a really critical bit of provide of enabling significant penetration of electric renewables onto the electricity grid. Um, wind and solar are great resources, but they're uh, intermittent, they fluctuate a bit. So having um, energy storage in the grid basically allows that um, significant penetration of renewables. And then it's a question of uh, where does the storage get deployed? Um, and what we're seeing with a company like Zonin is that they're able to deploy the, the energy storage um, in the home. And so that gives a couple of uh, benefits. Uh, one is that for somebody who has rooftop solar on um, and without a battery, then if they're not home during the day, then all of that solar power they're generating during the day gets exported to the grid. And then in the evening when they're home and you know, consuming a lot, it's pulled back from the grid. So adding storage to that in the home basically allows you to move towards self-consumption of your own power. And um, that means that you have less, um, less call on the grid and these energy storage systems can also be um, configured to be backup capable. So they provide some resiliency. You know, you can back up, the, if, if you lose the power grid, you've got backup power. So there are a couple of reasons why people are um, deploying uh, energy storage, but it's still a very early market. Um, not very many systems around the world. Sonnen's the market leader, um, and, uh, but it's still a relatively small number of systems. Um, mm. And then, you know, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, um, that's at the distributed level. What about at the grid level storage? Um, are you looking at um, purchases that would fill in that gap or is Shell's play really to um, focus on gas for that sort of um, that backup and that dispatchable generation? Yeah, so we at, at the grid level storage, um, we are we, we're developing projects for grid storage. We have got a team, uh, one of my colleagues looks after our, um, our renewable power development team. So he looks at uh, onshore solar and uh, onshore wind and onshore storage, or, or grid storage rather. Um, and we are um, looking at putting um, large um, grid-connected batteries in place, have already got some deployed in uh, North America and, on, and attached to our assets, and we think more and more you can do that. I think that one's less of a technology play because with um, grid-connected storage, uh, it's, it's more of a project development activity, much like, say, a solar farm. Uh, whereas in the case of Sonnen, you're basically selling a, um, a, a solution that's been, where the technology's been integrated, grid connected, or, or also not grid connected rather, but online and, and has much different functionality. Let's look at the back to distributed storage. You mentioned Sonnen and think about those electric vehicle charging um, operators that um, you've also bought. They do sort of seem at the face of it sort of reasonably disparate, but judging by what you've been saying recently, Shell is actually looking to pull them together as part of an offering to consumers that would presumably match what they current, currently offer in, um, in petrol, but actually go inside the home and fulfill all energy needs for, for a house, um, totally electric, um, electricity, storage, 
electric vehicles. Is that right? And how are you going to go? And and how are you going to? Sorry, how are you going to go about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's a that's a certainly a direction of travel that um, you know people see as a real possibility. Um, and what's interesting about Sonnen is that um, they've already, to some degree, done it or done some of it rather. They've got um, over thirty thousand systems deployed in Germany, which is their home market where they started, and that's in excess of two hundred megawatt hours of um, batteries, which is sort of when you think of you know the the Hornsdale battery in South Australia is a big single grid connected battery. It's maybe double that. So the the installed base of storage in Germany is already quite significant. And what Sonnen has done is they've done a couple of things. They've created the Sonnen community where members with uh, Sonnen batteries are able to sort of join the community. And if they've got some surplus power, they can sort of effectively sort of, you know, you know share it between other members of the community by buy and sell between them. But more recently, they had a um, virtual power plant um, approved by the German regulator. And what the VPP or virtual power plant does is it aggregates um, batteries where the customer has let us use their battery. We take a small bit of each battery and aggregate it up, and then we're able to use that to provide a, a service to the grid. And in this initial case, it's frequency response, but you could do other services. And what I think is really interesting about that then is you get a really nice sort of synergistic play where the customer gets a battery at home, which gives them what they want around self-consumption and resiliency through backup power if they've taken that option. And then the grid gets a service as well from being able to aggregate the batteries that are out there and then, you know, stabilize the grid, which has a benefit for everybody who's connected to the grid. How, how do you then bring that all together um, by creating your own utility, which basically sort of comes in? You're, you're trying to muscle out the some of the existing incumbents out of out of that area and bring that all together. Um, I think in um, another one of your purchases has been First Utility um, in Europe, and it's got I think nearly a million customers. Is that going to be the model forward for Shell on a broader scale? Yes, yeah, so I think the first thing is that you know when people talk about the word utility, what do we really mean? Because you know. The, the electricity industry was organized a certain way in the past, and I think the, the future will be a bit different. You'll have people who run you know, the distribution networks, the poles and wires and things, and, and there'll still be a role for those people. There's a generation story, which I think is changing from, you know, from central generation you know, to maybe more and more renewables. We talked a bit about it. Then you get to the retailing side, and there you, know, you mentioned First Utility, and in the UK, First Utility has... Um, is serving gas and electricity to um, customers in, in the UK and Germany. And, and it's an energy retailer. And we see that um, what our customers want is not just you know supply of energy through the meter. They want more and more services like Sonnen and, and other things. Um, so we'll look to um, add that to them. Um, so I don't see it as really us trying to muscle others out or compete with others. What we're trying to do is, is to deliver what con consumers want which I think their needs are changing, their wants and needs are changing, and they're moving probably more and more towards a broader suite of services than just simply you know, buying you know, energy through the meter. But Shell or what Shell New Energies, um, th th this new division will in fact be their service provider for all, the, all of these services. Yes, correct. Yes. Yeah, so it's very so much, when... you know, yeah, we very much want to sort of you know, play close to customers because uh, we think that's, you know, my title, VP Energy Solutions, is really all about starting from the customer, understanding what they need, and then delivering it for them, whether that's so home or uh, factory. 
Yeah. So clarify, when Shell talks about being the biggest power utility or the biggest power player in the world, I'm not too sure exactly what the words were. were, were. Um, it did sort of say that that was its ambition for, and, and possibly could get there in the early 2030s. What exactly is it talking about? Yeah, that was um, that was uh, something that our um, Martin Vetzler, our executive director for um, our integrated gas and new energies business, uh, mentioned in a recent interview that um, uh, Shell has introduced a net carbon footprint ambition where what we're looking to do is to reduce the carbon intensity of, of, the, of the energy we sell to customers. Today we, are, we, we sell uh, gas and oil products to people, which when they're consumed have a certain amount of uh, emissions. And we're looking over time to reduce the total carbon intensity of the product portfolio we sell to people. And to do that, one lever we have among several is to build a very big electricity business because you can sell people electricity, and if that electricity is low carbon, zero carbon, then that helps us on the direction. And what Martin was referring to is that if you play it out for a company the size of Shell, to get to the sort of targets we want to, then that would add up to a, an amount of electricity which would make us one of the biggest, if not the biggest, seller of electricity in the world. So Shell then shifts from being big oil, part of big oil, the big, big, big four oil companies, to being part of some... Big grid, I suppose. Big electricity, um, electricity yeah. provider as well. Well, not quite. So effectively, yeah. we we switch from being, I guess, a gas and oil company because many people think of us as maybe an oil company because that's normally what you see through the fuel stations, which are most visible. But actually, today we're uh, we are an, a gas, oil, and petrochemicals company, and we're moving to an, an an energy company where we have electricity alongside the other three value chains of gas, oil, and chemicals. Let's just go back and just go back over about how quick this transition can happen. Then, um, you know, people talk about one hundred percent renewables. People talk about one hundred percent uptake of electric vehicles. How quickly will this happen? Do you think? Um, and how quickly can it happen? Yeah, I think we'd all like some of those trends in you know, it's decarbonising to happen faster because you know there's lots of reports out there we're not making enough progress. So. You know, we all need to be seriously looking to reduce, you know, carbon emissions, you know, quickly. Um, but things such as, you know, you mentioned electric vehicles, and there's just a simple practical uh, reality that, you know, there's something like 100 million vehicles, light-duty passenger vehicles in the world are made or sold every year. And there's maybe a billion of them in the world. So if you've got a billion cars in, in the world and you're selling 100 million a year, then you know, even if you put all 100 million to electric vehicles, it's quite a while before you go into a world with no internal combustion engines. So there is a certain amount of inertia and stock changeover. So the transitions will not, it, it'll be a relatively gradual overall transition. But what we'll see in certain markets, certain certain areas, it'll move a bit faster than that. Um, but it's, it's a significant thing. The energy system is a massive, it, it's a very, very big energy system, even in Australia, but in the world. Um, and these things take quite a while to sort of to move and make significant changes. In the past, um, a lot of incumbent industries have bought new technologies and the, the temptation in the past has been to put them in the bottom drawer and forget about them and just will keep on carry on as usual. That doesn't that no longer seems to be the case now. How do you think that the industry in general is going to um, cope with transition and disruption? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily buy the thesis initially that, you know, people buy company technologies and put them in the drawer because that almost sort of sounds like, you know, a negative. Um, you know, from our perspective, we buy things that we think are great businesses and we want to help scale them and make them a success. 
Um, I think you know the broader point on industry disruption and change. Um, each company will address it differently, and and um, you know, and I think um, though the the individual strategies within each industry, whether that's you know a traditional utility or a you know a, an oil company or a gas company or what have you, you know, you'll get some who will adopt the right strategies and will thrive, and others who won't and, and won't do so well. And I think for us, at least, we're 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 looking to thrive through this transition and be, you know, a positive you know, positive force in in the move to a lower carbon economy. On that note, Brian Davis, thank you very much for joining this podcast. Excellent. Thanks very much, Giles. So that was Brian Davis. He's the head of energy solutions within the new energies division of Shell. They've got one to two billion dollars to play with a year, possibly growing to four billion dollars um, a year. Um, look, they've got great forecasts, electrification of just about everything, you know, in the early 2030s, possibly being having been the biggest provider of electricity in the world by the early 2030s, still very attached to gas as the transition fuel. Um, David, it's very hard to turn around these big companies, but I guess it's heartening to see them trying. It is heartening to see them trying. History is full of big companies that haven't been able to deal with uh, disruptors. Um, Shell's had previous goes at uh, solar cells from memory, uh, as has BP, and they've backed out. Uh, it's you know life isn't always so easy uh, in a startup industry. Um, uh, just ask anyone who suffered from an MLF recently. <laughs> um, yes, uh, yeah, but, but, it, but, but good, good on them as you say for trying. Yeah, now yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see how they sort of manage to bring all that back to, back together. I mean, you know, they're thinking about battery storage, they're thinking about electric vehicles, they're thinking about reaching out to the consumers who they say they get to now through their petrol stations. Quite how they marry that all together and become the biggest provider of electricity in the world is yet to be seen. Presumably, they're thinking about a utility that looks quite different to what we think of them now but um, really who knows what's going to be happening 10 years into the future look just pause there very briefly David to thank our sponsors Solaray Energy and What Watchers we thank them for their support they're very both long-term sponsors of the um, podcast and uh, we couldn't do it without them so um, thanks again to Solaray and What Watchers and the um, solar conference on next week by the Smart Energy Council that could be um, an interesting uh, point to get in. bigger than Ben Hur you know I, I honestly think uh, the Clean Energy Council one has uh, long been the premier event and they charge like it's a premier event too. Uh, the Smart Energy uh, uh, Council is essentially free to uh, dele people, delegates who want to go. Uh, very large list of exhibitors I'm told and apparently as many as 5,000, a big number of uh, people register. Um, so I, I think there's some very good speakers this year. Uh, I've got a lot of time for Alan Kohler who's speaking on the first morning. I think uh, everything he's, most of the things he says make a lot of sense and, and from a non-technical point of view. So um, get yes. along and have a listen. Always a wonderful ability to helicopter into a subject and, um, and, and make sense of it and do it in a clear way. Look, I look forward to seeing you there and um, um, many of our listeners and, um, and other people there as well. I'll be running around with a microphone, so we might even get a couple more interviews out of that. David, thank you very much for joining um, us um, today and um, bye for now and talk next week. Cheers, Charles.
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.